This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Kiki's. Franklin Coley, Kiki's in the news this week being acquired by our good friends at Denny's. What's up with that? I love Kiki's. We have one about a mile and a half from our house. Very familiar with it. Hit it all the time, man. It's so delicious. Look out. Look out, everyone. Kiki's is coming for you. They are something in the breakfast space. Yeah. So Denny's is uh, scooping them up, man. Good uh, good purchase. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's some other companies, First Watch and some others that are probably watching that very, very closely. Denny's also in the news uh, recently and again this week for executive changes. Our good friend, friend of our firm, longtime leader in this industry, all around great guy, John Miller, announced his retirement as CEO from Denny's. He's done an amazing job there navigating through the reformulating the brand, reformulating the value prop, and then the pandemic and navigating that company through the pandemic. Uh, just couldn't, couldn't, can't say enough nice things about John Miller, but uh, he's being replaced with another good friend of ours and an, an all-star in her own right, Kelly Velarde, is coming on board Denny's and will be overseeing this acquisition of Kiki. So big things at Denny's, big doings in South Carolina at their HQ, and congratulations on the Kiki's acquisition. And on that happy note, let's do the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go superside. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch coming up on the podcast. Despite the inflationary pressures facing retailers and small business operators, the credit card companies have decided that now's the time to increase their fees and take an even bigger chunk out of already tight margins. We're joined by Lyle Beckwith, the Senior Vice President of Government Relations for the National Association of Convenience Stores and also the leader of the Merchant Payment Coalition to help us understand what's happening, why it's happening, and even more importantly, how operators can fight back. And the midterm elections are just six months away and major political shifts are afoot not only at the federal level, but in governor's offices across the country. We'll take a look at where things stand today and particular races that operators should pay close attention to. And the comment period for the SEC's proposed climate change rule is closing quickly. We'll discuss the ramifications for the industry and how operators can protect their interests. And of course, the latest and greatest on Starbucks, which now has over 60 units that have voted for unionization. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with the latest latest scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, the calendar says May the 6th, 2022. We are just about six months away, almost to the day, for the 2022 midterm elections. Obviously, the uh, periodicals and newspapers are full of uh, stories about who's up, who's down, generic polls. And we know history tells us what we should expect in a midterm election with a party of one party in charge in the White House and all those variables. Franklin, lay out the historical context of midterm elections and then lay out kind of the environment in this particular go around and what you see happening in November of 2022. Okay. Midterm elections, historically, the party out of power in Washington, D.C. wins. And we see that lining up with repubs looking like they're going to have a good year. Midterm elections also have a lot more gubernatorial races on the ballot than, you know, presidential election years. So we have 36-ish gubernatorial elections on the ballot. We also, this midterm, are in a redistricting year. 
So the changing of the lines of districts, congressional level at the state legislative level, that usually leads to larger than usual swings as well, because we kind of have seat shuffling and we have, you know, seats with a little different makeup than they had before. So all these things are coming together and combining for what could be a pretty dramatic turn of events up and down the, uh, the ticket in November. I will note uh, before I hand back over the mic to you, Mr. Kefauver, that most pundits are, are thinking that repubs are going to take the U.S. House. Most pundits think that repubs are likely to take the U.S. Senate, although that will be much closer. And most pundits think, and we can talk through it a little bit, that repubs are going to pick up some gubernatorial seats, although they may lose a couple as well. Um, but anyway, the overall the overall arc, Joe, right now is Republicans are looking like they're in a good position. Many of them are going to run on inflation and kind of handling of the economy. But we have some X factors out there. Abortion, for instance, is an issue that all of a sudden has become an X factor. We have a lot of Republicans running on other cultural issues as well. So, you know, it's a long time between now and Election Day. Things can change. But this is where we stand right now today. Last thing, Donald Trump. We have an un, that's another unprecedented factor. We don't usually have a former president involving himself or her, himself in this case in in races. And so that's something else that a lot of pundits are watching and talking about. Yeah, you know, the news for Democrats has been so bleak for so long, not only the, the systemic structural problems of midterm elections for incumbents, but, you know, the, the inflation, all, you know, everything else going on. This this abortion thing is is got to be looked at as a as a as a rare gift for them, especially with with regard to independent and swing voters. So you know, a lot to happen in the next six months, Franklin. So we we focus mostly uh, on this podcast, obviously at the state and local level. Talked about the U.S. House likely mathematically going to the Republicans, Senate pretty much up for grabs. You know, it's a it's a it's a jump ball there. But the interesting thing for for you know a lot of the the issues and policies that affect our business model happen at the state level. The governor's races you mentioned in particular, you know, where, where are the, the kind of, and, and a lot of these governor's races are pro forma. I mean, you know, the, the, the blue candidate is going to win in, in this state and the red candidate is always going to win in that state. And, and, and so a lot of them we can quote unquote ignore, but there's always five or 10 really important states to watch where there could be a flip or contested. What are those key states that operators should be paying attention to? So there's a few key states. And in fact, some of these key gubernatorial battlegrounds also line up with key U.S. Senate battlegrounds. And so that makes it doubly interesting to kind of watch that. And so where those battlegrounds kind of line up is, uh, let me go through my list here. I think Georgia and Pennsylvania and Michigan, Wisconsin, these are states that are going to be all eyes in these states because U.S. Senate and the governor's mansion are both going to be hanging in the balance in in these states. So those are kind of the biggies. If we're talking about gubernatorial seats that may flip, <clears throat> let's uh, let's go through them here. So places where Democrats could retake <clears throat> the governor's mansion. You know, there's only a, only a, a couple here, Joe. Do you want to guess what the, the first one is right out of the box here? Where Democrats could retake the governor's mansion? Correct. Let me think. My home state of Maryland, crab kicks and football, probably got to be the top of the list. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's right. So, 
you know, that's that's probably top. I mean, we could say let's let's watch Georgia. You know, I think Georgia probably returns to the mean a little bit here in the midterm. But um, I think that will be competitive. That may be an opportunity for for Democrats. But beyond that, Massachusetts, um, I think, is probably a good pickup opportunity for Dems up in Massachusetts. Charlie Baker, I guess, is termed out. Right. right? And uh, the sitting attorney general, Mar Healy, is probably a, you know, we, we said that last time about Martha Coakley. She was a shoe in and that didn't work out so well. But, you know, Mar Healy's got to be the overwhelming favorite to <laughs> become governor. Yeah, that's- Yep, 100%. That is a definite pickup for Dems. I don't, that's not even, I, I wouldn't even count that as like a battleground. That's that's almost basically a done deal. Um, so the rest of kind of the battlegrounds you're you're looking for, mainly repubs probably probably are, are ahead in most of these. So we'll just buzz through them quickly. And then maybe we'll just go through them in order too, because some are happening sooner rather than later. And so it's, the races are more developed and we know who the front runners are. But, you know, so we've got Pennsylvania. That's probably a true toss up. In fact, I would I would say the Democrats are likely to retain that at the gubernatorial level. They may lose at the Senate level, but we can talk through that. Georgia, we already mentioned Maine kind of in play, Joe. We've got the Republican former governor coming back to run against the incumbent governor, Janet Mills, a Democrat. And so. Interestingly, Maine's in the the battleground list. Um, Nevada is in play, um, kind of one of the few purplish states left out there where actually abortion may be a defining issue in both the in, in all races in in Nevada, and we can talk about that if you want. Uh, Maryland, we already mentioned Kansas. We have a Democrat in Laura Kelly that is a governor in Kansas, kind of a surprise upset. It's going to be a real challenge for Democrats to hold on to that seat. And uh, in fact, that, that's like one of the few jurisdictions where we have, you know, a lot of repubs lining up behind one candidate don't have is, is wide open a race. Michigan, that is going to be a top target taking out Governor Whitmer. And there's a huge Republican field there. Arizona, that is going to be a battleground. There, there's It's wide open right now on both sides. Wisconsin, we have Democrat Governor Tony Evers who is going to be defending. There's a wide Republican field that is, that is kind of wide open right now as well. Franklin, it, it, you know, for, for the restaurant industry, you know, one of the aspects people operators need to remember is we rely on our state restaurants, our national restaurant association, our state restaurant association to be, you know, politically active and involved in this. It's a tough, it's a, it's a sticky wicket, if you will, for state restaurant association heads. You'd mentioned Michigan. For a, a restaurant association to, you know, kind of quote unquote take on a sitting governor has lots of ramifications. You've got friends in the legislature that are egging you on to be aggressive, and you're looking across the street at a at a governor kind of from a maybe a different philosophical mindset on on your issues, and it's tough to take on incumbents. And you've got some some very significant restaurant states here: Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Wisconsin, you've got some 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 restaurant intensive states with a Democratic governor and a state association that probably leans at least slightly red at a minimum and very red more likely, and it's a, it's a, it's a sticky wicket for those CEOs of, of those restaurant associations and those boards to kind of engage. So it's it's just interesting that the, the dance you got to play. You know, you don't want to go great guns and try to take out a governor and the governor survives and then man, you're on the you're on the list, right? 
in most circumstances, with rare exception, I, I think most of the associations are going to stay out of the electoral politics of a governor's race in that circumstance and instance you just described. I think most are going to rely on kind of board members that are, you know, Republicans or Democrats and active in politics to act as the emissary with the the various campaigns and kind of let them do their thing. And so that you've got a line of communication into both camps. That doesn't mean the association won't get involved. They may get involved in some of these races and certainly in the legislative contest. I think you're going to see the associations getting involved and engaged. To your point, I think it's different if it's an open seat in a wide open race. But with the sitting governor, I I think in in most circumstances, these associations are probably going to hang back and let some of their members do that heavy lifting for different campaigns. Let's say Republicans at the governor level have a big day and a lot of these toss up seats go, go Republican. Pennsylvania goes Republican, Wisconsin goes Republican, Michigan goes Republican. What, what does that mean to the operator? What's, what's, what's going to be different? I mean, you think about Pennsylvania, Governor Wolf, some, you know, he's been a huge advocate, been waging about, but the, but the, the Republican legislature there has kind of stymied that. Michigan, kind of similar dynamic, Wisconsin. Will much change for restaurant owners if those governors are replaced? I certainly won't be playing defense as much, but where are the opportunities? I'm going to answer that question, but let me back up a little bit and and provide some context. So um, we're in the primary season right now, right? And, you know, all states set their own primary dates. So starting in May is when the rush really starts. But some don't do it till August. So Pennsylvania, May 17th, Georgia, May 24th, Maine, June 14th, Nevada, June 14th, Maryland, June 19th, Kansas, August 2nd, Michigan, August 2nd, Arizona, August 2nd, Wisconsin, August 9th. In those late states, we don't really have a sense yet of who's going to emerge from the primary contest on the repub dim side of the aisle for a lot of them. Um, we do for some. For the Earlier contest, we have a sense of what that race is going to look like. And so, Joe, to your point, we can predict more reliably, you know, what a Republican or a Democrat in that seat is going to look like and act like. This Republican primary contest and this Democrat primary contest, depending on who emerges and depending how those contests go, you know, candidates give a push to the left or the right. We could get a moderate. We could get an extreme candidate. You know, in Arizona, we're looking Right now, the front runner in the Republican primary is Carrie Lake is pretty, pretty far to the right. I mean, you know, she's she's still embracing the stop the steal and and that that kind of thing. We've seen a lot of that in Arizona. So this primary process is going to sort itself out over the coming months. We'll be set up for this this general election ballot. I do think the ones now I'm going to directly answer your question, Joe. You know, where you've got these blue and red trifectas, either you're breaking a trifecta or you're adding a trifecta, that's where you're going to have the biggest policy swings. You know, let's go through them real quick. You mentioned Pennsylvania. I think repubs are going to fail to take the governor's mansion there because Democrats have coalesced around the attorney general and repubs are all over the place. There's not a repub there that's getting more than 20 percent. I think they're giving up that. So you're going to have a stalemate there, Joe. Same situation we've had before. Georgia, if Democrats steal that, it's a new day in Georgia. I mean, you break a Republican trifecta in the state. Maine. Never going to happen. 
Maine, I don't think it's going to happen in a midterm cycle. But in Maine, you know, if LePage retakes a governor's mansion, you break a dim trifecta and you you have divided government again in Maine. That's huge. That's that's huge. He he exercised that veto pen pretty regularly and kind of, you know, held it above the legislature when he was a repub. Nevada taking out a dim incumbent there dramatically changes Nevada. We've seen as it went to a blue trifecta, we saw this rush of pent up energy around all of our issues. And by the way, uh, Nevada has a minimum wage issue on the ballot in the general election ballot. So that's a hugely consequential gubernatorial race there. Larry Hogan, Maryland, Joe, when Democrats take that, assuming they do, we're going to have a, a blue trifecta there, and we're going to probably see a rush of stuff coming out of that state. And so, you know, we were debating whether or not Larry Hogan was going to veto uh, this bill. And, you know, he did, and it got overridden or is in the process of getting overridden, right? So, like, that goes away. So Maryland is kind of a moderate state. It may be Maryland may look more like Montgomery County after Election Day. Yeah, you, you could make you could make a plausible argument, and I, I and I make I'm I'm in this camp. I find myself in this camp, but but it's just my opinion that I think for operators like restaurant owners, retail, small business, divided government's a good thing. Um, I think you will see, especially after this next election cycle, when when divided government in a place like Maryland or Massachusetts goes away, and you have the blue team in charge. Then you're going to have Illinois, California, NV. You're going to see this entire swath of, of legislation come pouring out of the pipeline. Not good for operators. On the flip side, in the Wisconsin's of the world, in the uh, Michigan's of the world, the Pennsylvania's of the world, the Republicans gain control of that governor's seat. I will bet money. Most likely, they will not be Chamber of Commerce Republicans. They're going to be social activist types of Republicans from that wing of the party. And you're going to see the whole social agenda come blowing through. And instead of focusing on restaurant relief and tax relief and regulatory, we're going to be talking about schools and what, what's, the, what's the thing, the critical race theory craziness and the Disney stuff. And, and we're going to be having government tell businesses what they can and cannot say. And that isn't good for businesses either. Yep. I, I think divided government ultimately is the best place for small business people to be. We can't ever seem to process that. But I think what, what ha- what's going to happen, if, if the Republicans take over in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, you're going to see social politics 101. And if the Dems take over in Massachusetts and Maryland, you're going to see, you know, Bernie Rama 101. And it's it's not a good place. Either of those places are not good places to operate small business. So I do want to finish out the the calendar on the other states, but 100%, I I think in this current era, I tend to agree with you that generally divided government is preferable. And we're used to wanting for Republican red trifectas so, so we can pass a bunch of preemptions, right? And so, you know, but, but that was a red team, different red team now. That was in this old kind of political world. And we've had 18 podcasts over the past years about this changing dynamic in the political incentives around Ron DeSantis and how that's a threat to the business community and da, 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 da. So I think, I think you're right. That calculus is changing. So, but I do want to run through the rest of these. So Kansas, yet again, we get deeper into the calendar. It's like harder to know and and kind of predict what's going on, but We've got a, a Democrat governor in Kansas. She very easily could be taken out to be a little bit surprised if she's not. And then you've got a red trifecta in Kansas. It's a dramatic change in environment, in political environment. 
Michigan again. We could have a red trifecta in Michigan if Governor Whitmer gets taken out. And I, I, I don't want to say that's likely, but I, I think that's highly possible. That will be a top battleground with the U.S. Senate races. You know, this is we'll, we'll see what happens there. Arizona, you know, this is a key battleground. U.S. Senate, Arizona has emerged as one of the key battlegrounds, and that's that's going to impact at the at the gubernatorial level as well. The question is, does Carrie Lake, who Trump's backing, emerge from the primary, and does she go too far to the right in the primary that it, it imperils her in the general election? Wisconsin, again, Democrat governor, repubs take over. You know, we've got a different policymaking environment there. So, Joe, not even looking at the congressional, just focusing on the on the governor's races that are in play that we just went through. There are a, there can be some dramatic swings at the state level in the policymaking environment. Georgia, Maine, Nevada, Maryland, Kansas, Michigan, Arizona, Wisconsin. Those are all those are all could be dramatic swings in the policymaking environment. There's a lot on the line this election at the at the state level. I think Republicans will be fine in Arizona and Georgia. That to me is a a joke that in the midterm that they would be viable. Democrats be viable in those states, but uh, those other ones are big. The big, the big three out in the Midwest, and then Maryland, and Massachusetts, and Nevada. Those are the kind of ones I'm focused on. So it's six months out. We just want to kind of lay the lay the groundwork, lay the environment, and you know, kind of kind of arrange the deck chairs, if you will, prior to the election. And we will update you periodically as November nears. So as our listeners will recall, we have spent some time on this podcast in the past talking about credit card fees and the conversation that's been going on for a decade or more between the credit card companies and the the retailers and the restaurant community uh, over fees. And it appears that conversation has flared up again in a big way. A lot of press over the last few weeks about Visa and MasterCard upping their fees and Obviously, they've got some fairly uh, stalwart watchdogs in Congress. The retail community has reacted strongly and is carrying the message that this is you know, the wrong time to be doing this. There's no need to be doing this and organizing uh, what's been a phenomenal resistance to the credit card companies over the last decade or so. Uh, we are fortunate to have as a guest an old, old friend of mine, uh, Lyle Beckwith, the Senior Vice President of Government Relations for the National Association of Convenience Stores, and the intellectual and probably financial head of the Merchant Payment Coalition, which has been the, 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 the spear of the business community in having this dialogue with the credit card companies. Lyle, thank you very much for coming on Work and Lunch. Hey, it's great to be here. So, Lyle, tell me, tell me let's just kind of start kind of at the beginning what, you know, you see that all this inflation is happening. Prices, is pressure everywhere. Pressure at the gas pump, which you well know. Pressure all throughout the retail consumer goods space, if you will, for lack of a better term. It seems like if credit card companies are, you know, having 2 to 3 or 4% of that sale, then this inflation has got to be driving their, their revenues through the ceiling. Why now are they choosing to up their fees? I, I think it really is pretty simple because they can. There was, as you mentioned, there was a hearing uh, in the Senate Judiciary Committee last week, and really what came out of that was the arrogance and the hubris of the credit card industry. 
we make a lot about the fact, and Congress focused on the fact that uh, indeed the, the, the MasterCard and Visa both raised their fees, I think it was April uh, 20th. This despite a uh, bipartisan, bicameral letter that was sent to the CEOs of both companies asking them not to because this is the wrong time to do it. And it's important to note when I say bipartisan, bicameral, there were conservative Republicans, Senator Roger Marshall from Kansas and Congresswoman Beth Van Dyne from Texas, as well as more progressive Democrats, Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois and Congressman Peter Welch from Vermont, all signed this letter and sent, said, you know, there's inflation. Now is not the time to do this. Um, and a week later, the credit card companies did, in fact, raise the rates, which was the impetus for the hearing last week. That just was a finger in the eye to, to Congress saying, we're going to do what we want to. One thing I'd like to correct you on, Joe, is you said in 10 years, we, uh, the Merchants Payments Coalition has been around for about 20 years, actually. Oh, my goodness. Working on this. You know, we put that together 20 years ago just to bring the retail community together. And we've continued to work to educate Congress about it. This increase, it, you know, although insulting and unnecessary, was really just a, a tip of the iceberg. Fees are already so high that you know, they should be being lowered, not raised you know, to compare where the rest of the world is. And the United States pays up to six times higher fees than anywhere else in the world. And this was just a flexing of, of Visa, MasterCard greed to say, well, we want more in a time of inflation. And you're absolutely right. What really came out, uh, what's really being brought to the forefront is when gasoline was 250 a gallon, you know, Visa, MasterCard, we're getting a fit in the banks, we're getting a fixed fee plus a percentage of that 250. When it's $5 a gallon, they're getting twice as much as they were before for doing nothing else. Meantime, uh, at, at the same time, you know, the retailers' margins are getting squeezed when, whenever prices go up. And the interesting thing that came out, uh, one, one of the many interesting things that came out of the Senate hearing, and I hope we can talk about that hearing a little bit more because it was really an amazing hearing, was that it was pointed out that not only are they collecting these fees, but they're collecting these fees on the taxes that are paid. So, you know, there's a huge amount of tax on motor fuel. The retailers are basically the collection agent for the state and the government. And we are charged for collect a fee for collecting that tax. And when that was brought up at the hearing, several senators sat up in their chair, not even realizing that that fee was being collected on taxes as well. So the, the inflationary aspect of this is clear, but it's just, the, as you said, the point of the spear of the much bigger problem, which is they can raise these fees whenever they want. There's no competitive pressure to keep them from doing it. So Lyle, when 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 you know you have a hearing like that, and you know we think of the the, the I, you know I, I make the mistake of lumping the banks and the credit card companies together. I shouldn't, but there's so much cross pollination with the companies, yeah. it's hard not to. But you know, are there? Did their allies in Congress on many of their issues kind of run for cover on this issue? Are there senators that stand up and say, you know, and support them vocally for this? Or are they just they just take their shelling in the hearing and, and live to fight another day? How does that how, what is that like? What's the climate in there? So it's been my experience that many members of Congress, both parties, view this as a fight between friends. They're, they're friends with their local banks. The friends with their local merchants, they don't want to get in the middle of this fight. It's a family fight, and anyway, they figure any way they go at it, they're going to lose. The reality is, by taking no action at all, they've taken a, a side. They've sided with the credit card industry. 
the banks and the credit card companies. By doing nothing, the banks and credit card companies are winning right now. And so what it's been a matter of is getting through the politics and really getting down to the heart of the issue, which is there is no competition here. Uh, these fees are completely hidden from the from the consumer, and the and you know consumers without the high rewards cards or are paying cash are picking up the inflated costs for the, the the elite few who have the premium rewards cards. So the whole message in Congress has been been, and that, that's why it was important for me to say we've been doing this for 20 years. Just because there hasn't been legislation, there's constant turnover in Congress, and we constantly have to remind new members and their their staff and staff turnover as well you know about this problem and what has transpired now is it's sort of come to a head because even those uh, members of congress who are close to the banking industry who didn't support us in the past didn't support us because they were against government intervention government price fixing etc what's going on in congress now is a call for competition inflation has just brought it to the forefront it got the attention of a, a lot of members of Congress who are digging through the politics and getting down to the real issue, which is the lack of competition. And what we heard from the hearing is members of Congress are looking for ways to insert competition into this so the credit card companies can't run rampant. And I should say the credit card industry, because you're right, the banks and the credit cards sort of get conflated here. It's easier for me just to say credit card industry, which means credit card companies and the banks. But they are, you know, they've pushed the envelope too much. And, you know, with what's going on in the economy right now, I, uh, there's a great deal of interest in finally inserting some competition in the market. So, Lyle, so I got a, a couple of questions. Well, one's more of an observation uh, and then a, and a couple of questions. But it seems to me, you know, we've seen post-pandemic, the government with all kinds of federal relief programs for different industries at the top of that list, the restaurant revitalization fund, you know, billions and billions of dollars going to support smaller mom and pop businesses. And, and, and the reality is that uh, Visa and MasterCard have their hand in that cookie jar. That, that, that Some of those monies that the taxpayers have given to said restaurateur are now going to be end up ending up at a higher rate in Visa and MasterCard's pocket. And that's, you know, outrageous on a front. But Lyle, that same that same business owner, is there any leverage? I mean, if you're if you're Lyle Beckwith and you've got Lyle's Bar and Grill in the northern neck of Virginia, what 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 recourse do you have? So you you have no recourse at, with the bank or the credit card industry. The largest merchants, you know, have no recourse against the credit card industry. The, the, there are several options or several avenues of attack going on right now. Uh, there's several inquiries going on from the Federal Trade Commission, Department of Justice. There's class action lawsuits. But from a retail perspective, what you can do is get engaged with your members of Congress, with your trade associations, with NACs, with FMI, with the National Re Restaurant Association, National Retail Federation. When they are, when we're working with all those groups here in Washington, and when something is coming up that requires retailers uh, to engage, listen to us. The banks and the credit card companies are pounding the pavement, crushing members of Congress, telling them not to do anything on this. What we have is numbers of retailers, and those retailers have got to get engaged and contact their members of Congress and not let their foot off the gas, because the banks and the credit card companies are not taking their foot off the gas. This is this is too much money at stake, and they are used to fighting fighting this game. 
merchants are not, we're in restaurateurs are not, we're used to selling stuff and taking care of our customers. But at, it's at times like this, where when we all come together and reach out to your members of Congress, we actually do make a difference. And, and there, I can tell you without any qualm, the banks are reaching out to, to your member of Congress right now, telling them not to do anything. And if we don't reach out uh, as merchants, as restaurateurs, we'll get completely wiped, wiped away by, by the banking industry. So, Lyle, uh, kind of last question, and, and I know you are the, the 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 leader of the business community in this space. You know, do you? We here we are. We find ourselves mid-May. We have an election. You know, barely five six months away, whatever it is. Do you do you see over the course of the next six months any outside of hearings any meaningful action on this space? It's it's difficult to say, Joe, because in this environment, doing anything to the regular order, which is you know, pat, you know how a bill gets done when we were kids, we saw on Saturday morning, uh, that doesn't happen very often anymore. Um, the way things get done is, is things get punted till either a lame duck session after the election or until some must pass funding bill comes up and then it becomes a Christmas tree and things get hung on it. So it's very difficult to predict how something will happen, but I, I can tell you that we are not going to stop working one instant uh, every opportunity we have, we're going to work towards getting something done. I, I did want to share one thing with you, which, which is, I think, really pointed. Uh, and, and that is what came out of the Senate hearing, which we already knew, but I think the senators who were in attendance finally found out, was the other side has no message. We are right on the messaging. Okay. When we win the argument when it comes down to facts. So in the hearing, uh, the CEO of MasterCard was testifying basically how great credit cards are and how much value they produce and, and you know, it's a great system and security and fraud protection and all this. Um, and she kept saying what great value credit cards were. And this one senator came back to her and said, can you please elaborate as to the specific value cards give to the consumer? And after about five seconds of looking like a deer in the headlights, she said, value is valuable and at that point <laughs> value is valuable nice value is valuable and so at that point it became pretty clear that you know if we keep the pressure up there's no recourse we like the money is not a good answer from visa and mastercard and the banks we have the right message we just need to get the troops fired up and working you know from the trenches and the grassroots uh, to keep the pressure on from home that's that's what's going to be the difference of whether we get something moving and if, it, if we get something moving, it gets through. I've been saying, you know, for the last eight months, based on working on competition, we get a vote on something that brings competition and we're going to win. We are 4-0 right now. We've had four votes on swipe fees over the last 17 years. We've won every one of them, whether that was the Credit Card Fair Fee Act in the House Judiciary Committee, the Durbin Amendment, and two attempts to repeal the German Amendment, we have won every vote we've gotten. We just need to get a vote. And we're not going to get the vote unless we put the pressure on Congress to do so. So for our listeners, you know, we've got, you know, there's a wide swath of business organizations that our listeners are involved in. Some are involved in, you know, U.S. Chamber of Commerce and their local chambers. Some are involved with National Restaurant Association, some were involved with you, some were involved with you being National Association of Convenience Stores, some are involved with you know, NRF and NCCR, 
you know, so the message here is no matter what business group you are affiliating with, they are all on on this team, the Merchant Payment Coalition team, and need to need to continue to, to get their trade associations to elevate this issue, you know, internally and externally and get that message across, correct? Yeah, the one one caveat I would say is the chambers of commerce tend to be neutral on this because they are ah, the banks. But, right. but the actual, so you know, the restaurant associations, uh, NACs, the Canadian Association, Food Marketing Institute, Retail Federation, um, all of those groups represent merchants. And those right. are the groups that are leading the fight on this. Right. So, well, I, I will tell you what, Lyle, you have been, uh, and our listeners should know, you have been the, the point of the spear for, as you say, 20 years. You are the the burr underneath the foot of the bank executives in Washington, D.C., and you do a great job at it, and we appreciate all you're doing. And, you know, to our listeners, you know, pick up the phone, call your trade associations, tell them to put the pedal down on this issue. It's important. As we talk about, inflation is every day taking more and more of a chunk out of your business model, and the credit card companies want even more of it. So now's the, now's the time to act. Lyle, you are the best. Thank you for all you do. Appreciate your support and uh, coming on to Working Lunch and letting our audience know what's going on in this space. Really appreciate it. Cheers, Joe. Good talking to you. Well, we've talked at length on this podcast over the last six months about the activism of the SEC with regard to publicly traded companies on a number of fronts. I uh, spent most of our time talking about the climate piece, and that conversation is escalating quickly. And it appears that some early announcements by the Biden administration, SEC, on what the expectations are for publicly traded companies around climate goals and reporting is kind of escalating. And the business community is a little nervous about some of the preliminary proposals. Franklin, I know in a couple of weeks, hopefully we'll have some more clarity on this, but where's, what's the state of play real quick on that issue? Yeah, you know, there was a rush of conversation around this kind of at the beginning of the year, and a lot of investment firms and others were saying, we need this, you know, giving some kind of cover fire to the SEC to, to charge into this space. A lot of companies have been making commitments and working with external auditors and groups like CDP to certify their operations and 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 help provide a third-party seal of what they're doing in this space. And so I think there was kind of an expectation that we're, we're comfortable with the SEC doing some stuff in this space. We just want to know what it is. Then at the end of March, the SEC made this big rollout of, you know, what what they were going to require in terms of climate-related disclosures. And I think initially companies were, you know, okay with it. But look, it took a while to kind of read through all this stuff and unpack it. And I think as companies have gotten into it, they're coming to the determination that there's stuff in here that's potentially problematic. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with reaching down in the supply chain and getting disclosures from suppliers um, so that they can report it out as their own. And, you know, can you mandate? I guess you can contractually to some of these suppliers that they do this. You can't do that immediately, right? You have existing contracts. But like, can you rely on it? And now the company is going to be on the hook in terms of SEC disclosures for what some supplier, you know, some cattle farm in the middle of Texas is reporting on their, you know, methane emissions from their cattle or whatever. Right. And so that level of that kind of granular reporting all the way down through could be tens of companies down to the bottom of the supply chain could be more. I think is giving some company companies pause. So 
everyone needs to weigh in with their various trade groups. I think you're going to have a lot of trade groups kind of weighing in with the SEC. The comment period, Joe, it closes the end of May, I think May 20th. Is that right? I think that, yeah, it's like two weeks away. So, you know, the different trade groups, I think, are going to be bundling up comments to go to SEC. And so companies need to be participating in that process now. And as a result of that, we will, when that process gets more clarity, and especially with regard to our leading trade association, the National Restaurant Association, what their comments will be. I know they're assembling that as we speak. We'll have Aaron Frazier, their vice president of public policy, covers the space onto the pod and talk through kind of the industry positioning with regard to this issue set. So stay tuned for that. Starbucks Watch 2022. Franklin, it's your favorite time of the week. Starbucks Watch. What is the latest and greatest out of Seattle? Well, the lead is that Howard Schultz got an earning call this week and reinforced what we talked about some weeks ago that he'd said in a, like a company call or a, a town hall with employees, which was that you know stopping and halting the stock buybacks and reinvesting all that money into the employees in terms of increased wages, training, benefits, that he's going to open that spigot up for all existing workers, unless you're unionized. Because if you're unionized in those union storefronts, you know you got to bargain for these these benefits and these wage increases, and so it's not going to happen automatically within those those storefronts. One of the Buffalo locations within a day or two went on strike in response to those comments. You've got the labor community jumping to to the microphone and and saying this is unlawful. You know that this this constitutes unlawful speech. The truth is is uh, you know Schultz's comments, which it's in an earnings call, so this is not like off the cuff, right? This is very much choreographed and and planned out. The truth is his comments fall very much into a gray area, and so we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But let's talk about the strategy, Joe. The strategy here is that Starbucks as a company wants to demonstrate that it's a more frictionless and, and better relationship with management to not have a union shop within a store and that the company is committed to taking care of its workers. And that is the strategy pivot we've seen. And we've seen it in a couple of different circumstances now. Saying this in an earnings call is probably the biggest the biggest signal that this is going to be the new company posture going into bargaining, which will be a multi-month, potentially multi-year process, that they're going to try to demonstrate that that the organized units are not going to get get the kind of you know favorable treatment, for lack of a better term, of some of the unorganized units. So I think that's the the big headline this week, Joe, is this continued kind of pivot and change in strategy from Starbucks, and quite frankly, them getting a lot. You know, the company didn't talk about publicly in any big way, the union, when it was organizing in the, the initial phase. I mean, they talked about own the ground, but now they're addressing, you know, in an earnings call, right? So like this is this is now front and center. The company's talking about it nationally in front of a big microphone. So that's the big thing that happened this week. We can get into the numbers a little bit uh, where things stand, but that, that was the biggest show. Thoughts? Yeah, I just, I, I, it's an aggressive, an aggressive posture. It's an aggressive move. And so we'll, you know, I, I, I continue to be kind of, I don't want to say befuddled, but I, I never quite sure. I'm never quite sure what the strategy is. And the, the, the conversation has been about 
inclusion, communication, health and safety, protecting them, and not about wages and benefits. And the ca- company counters uh, with wages and benefits. And it's like, well, are, you, are you? Is there? Is there? Is there? There's. It seems to me still to be a fundamental disconnect in in Starbucks understanding what this is about. But that's just me. And you know, so, I, so part of. I don't disagree with you, but it, but I would note that part of the company's messaging is that that money is going to be reinvested in safer workplaces and increased training and, and some of those other items you, you mentioned, in addition to just wages and benefits. So they're definitely, you know, what they will say is, I don't think Howard Schultz said this expressly, but, you know, what 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 he was indicating is that the company had drifted away from the employee focus of that had been the core to the company's culture. Yeah. And and in doing so, they lost track of supporting their employees. And that's training, that's supported. And so this reinvestment is a return to that. I, my personal opinion, again, the, the strategy is still shifting. We haven't seen it fully unveiled. I think this is more the posture they should have been on in day one. But like talking about it more broadly than just in those three stores and and taking this approach more broadly and, and having – Groups talk about you know the record of uh, the SEIU and their and affiliated unions and making that part of the conversation. That really hasn't happened yet, by the way. But we'll see if that if that happens in the future or not. We're still kind of underway in this pivot. So to give a just a quick count, Joe. I mean, it, you know, it depends on what minute you 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 count this because it literally like changes every six hours. But we're at fifty nine units now voted to organize. Seven have rejected the union. Two are in the balance. I think we're up to like 250-ish that are in the process. So they're coming in bunches now. We're in like the heart of it now. They're start, the, the, you know, you blink your eyes, a day goes by, and three more units have been added to the list type of thing. It is just really, we're in the heat of it now. It's time for the legislative scorecard where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments in Franklin. Let's start with minimum wage. Uh, that minimum wage bill in Hawaii is luauing its way to the governor's office. Done deal. Uh, $18 an hour by 2028, increase in the tip credit, a buck fifty. Yeah, so we're, uh, we're done. It's going to jump up to $12 an hour by October. So that's a pretty steep increase from 1010, and uh, it'll keep escalating. So that's $18 an hour, Joe. Go from the highest state minimum wage in the country to a state that does not have a state minimum wage. Five different bills in Louisiana met their fate this week. Who could have seen that coming? Do you you think our good friend Stan Harris at the Louisiana Restaurant Association even lifted a finger, made a phone call? You know, I mean, he's got that that legislature so educated on the dynamics of the restaurant hospitality business model that I, I, I think sometimes he doesn't even have to show up. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that was a hard, hard one to get done in Louisiana. So, moving on, Franklin paid leave. We are still waiting in Delaware for the governor to put his signature on that paid leave bill. But in corporate news, Amazon made a little news in the uh, COVID nineteen space this week. Yeah, they've scaled back their COVID paid time off program, which you know we've seen a lot of companies do this. I think Amazon's actually kind of behind a little bit in terms of doing this. So effective immediately, you know, you, you will now get five days excused unpaid while you're waiting for uh, test results. So we've, we've seen 
We've seen this uh, across the board and we'll continue to see it. Folks are turning the page and moving on, Joe. Speaking of moving on, the Connecticut legislature has adjourned for the year and is moving on down the road. But on the way out the door, passed some pretty significant pieces of legislation. One of them, the captive audience legislation we were talking about. Headed to the governor for uh, his expected signature. Captive audience meetings will be barred at the state level in Connecticut. It'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out in practice, but it's a done deal there. Just up the street in Massachusetts, an issue that we've been following, the efforts by Uber and Lyft to kind of replicate what they did in California on their ballot initiative and trying to do the same thing in Massachusetts, but had a hearing this week in the state Supreme Court and it didn't seem like it went very well. Yeah, it's always hard to, to tell from kind of the oral arguments and, and the questions that judges ask, but let's say they appeared skeptical, Joe. So it's being litigated right now, the constitutionality of this ballot initiative that will potentially be on the fall ballot. So we'll just have to watch the, uh, the process and see how it kind of plays out. Yeah, as I understand it, they, um, the, the judges were skeptical that if, you know, a Uber and Lyft driver, you know, you get into an accident with them and they're an independent contractor, then you, you only have litigation recourse with them. You have no linkage to Uber and Lyft in the broader platform. The judges were skeptical that that was an equitable situation. So we'll see how that plays out. Franklin, do what, do what, do what, diddy. Tell me about the boy from New York City. They're making some news this week on their pay transparency law. It's terrible. Don't do that again. Yeah, they are. Uh, they're going to push back the. They're going to do a couple things, but they're going to push back the effective date to November one. I think it was going into effect like next week. So that's the big thing for operators. You know, it, we'll see how this all plays out. There's there's challenges around these pay transparency requirements in the era of you know remote work, and to name one of many challenges around these transparency requirements. So we'll, we'll see what what happens over the coming months and if this goes into effect and how it goes into effect and et cetera. But they made a couple couple tweaks and changes, the most important of which was pushing back the effective date. Franklin, are you going to tell me that you've never heard of the ad libs? The ad libs? That was their song in the late 1990s. Oh, yeah. No, I, know, I, know. I understand the song. What you don't know far exceeds what you do know in these spaces. So, you know, I, I never take it for granted. Anyway, Frank, tell me this. I know you know this. Switching to sustainability in Hawaii, why did that bill that we thought was was gonna was gonna not sail through the process, but make it through the process, the EPR bill, died in conference committee as a legislature adjourned for the year? Why do you think that didn't go through? Why do I think it didn't go through? Yeah. Uh, I I don't know, Joe. I don't know what you're what you're hitting at here. You're leaning towards. I just thought it was kind of a I don't want to say a done deal. It was never a done deal, but I thought there was general consensus. Both chambers passed bills, and you know the business community was involved in the conversation, and it just seemed like it got maybe got a little love to death. I don't know. It's a complicated issue. I I think we we said last week or the week before you had asked me. Of the two that are in conference committee, you know, what do you expect? And I, I said, minimum wage is a cut and dry issue. You know, everybody knows that wage rate goes up. I expect it to get approved. And EPR, I don't think we'll make it through the process. Or of the two would be the one that didn't make it through the process. This is a super complicated issue. There's a lot of moving parts to this. It is not cut and dry and, and simple at all. And, you know, you you push in one part of the balloon and, and you know, pops out another way. So there's a bunch of moving 
moving parts, you, you know, from collection, from requirements, from deposits, from – you've got to set up an entire marketplace to handle all this stuff. And so I, I think that was – if I if you're asking me what happened here, I think that's what happened at the end of the day. We had two bills. They were pretty close. But there's – the devil's in the details here. And there was – in in the, the parts that were left, there was a lot to be worked out. And I just don't think they could work it out in time. What that means, though, is we're going to start next legislative session with this thing pretty close to the end of the process. And so, you know, the, you know, the employer community needs to weigh in early and often in the legislative process this next go around because it's probably going to get done this this next go around, if I had to guess. Yeah, I mean, you, just, you think about the ecology and geology of Hawaii and what they're doing with garbage. And, you know, it's part mountainous. You know, it's obviously surrounded by water. Part, part of it's mountainous. Part of it's lava, you know, entire, entire islands made up of nothing but lava. So there's not a whole lot of place to put this stuff. And so I just thought there'd be a sense of urgency around getting a bill like that done. But you never know what's going to happen in the state legislatures. And Franklin, uh, we talked about Connecticut adjourning for the year. They had another very important bill that uh, got consensus on. Connecticut is now the fifth state in the country with a data privacy regime. Talk about it. Yeah, and hat tip to uh, Bryn at the NRA and and Scott at, at the Connecticut Restaurant Association for the work that they uh, did on this, as well as a lot of others, retail community and others, uh, because this is not really that bad a product um, that is popping out of the process here in Connecticut. You know, it's the fifth, you know, state level data privacy bill, but it doesn't have a private right to action. You know, California is the only one that has that now. And it has a lot of stuff in there that's in the Virginia law, which is, you know, it's good. So loyalty programs, a lot of the concerns around data collection for loyalty programs for restaurants and retailers, that stuff's protected. So you've got a lot of stuff in here that makes it easier for us to come in compliance, quite frankly, and centers the law and what it's supposed to be centered on and doesn't capture a lot of the the unintended uh, unintended consequences don't fall heavily on us. So it's a pretty good product and congrats to the folks both in the national level and the, and the state level that were able to get this done. Yeah. I think the Virginia bill is kind of becoming the consensus starting place on this conversation. And for, you know, serious policymakers, it, it does seem to balance the interests of protecting consumers without overburdening uh, business with heavy regs and litigation. It seems to be the right balance. Obviously, there are states out there on the on the left and right that will play politics with this issue. But for those serious policymakers, Virginia seems like the, the starting point. And that's kind of uh, where they got to in Connecticut. So to your point, congrats to Brennan and Scott Dolch, Connecticut Restaurant Association for a job well done. And Franklin, two more states in the, in the adjourned category. The, the list is dwindling. By the week, we are getting towards summer where the scorecard shrinks by the week, and that is our scorecard for the week. But uh, we'll have one for you next time. Well, another week, another pod. It has been a busy, busy week outside of the restaurant world. Franklin, May the 4th was this past week. May the 4th be with you for the Star Wars techie people out there. Carson Wars Chewbacca outfit into the office. It was amazing. Carson always has that Chewbacca outfit ready to go. May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. Joe wore some kind of costume out that night and we never heard from him until two days later. 
It was yes. quite a long siesta I took. Yes, sir, it was. And then, you know, lo and behold, this weekend, May May 6th, May, May 7th and 8th, May 7th, we have the Kentucky Derby. May 8th, we have Mother's Day. There's a whole lot, you know, busiest restaurant day in the world, Mother's Day. But it is, the, let's, start with, let's start with the Kentucky Derby, the run for the Roses, first Saturday in May. It's like the 140th running or some crazy number. And if you remember last year about this time, we were talking to RF, Restaurant Revitalization Fund, with our friend Aaron Frazier at the National Restaurant Association. Eric, uh, Aaron has kind of a, you know, a dark background, shady background as a bookmaker and, a, you know, a regular Tuesday, Thursday visitor at Pimlico Racetrack. And uh, not many people know that. But Aaron has been kind enough to come back on the pod and help us with our prognostications for uh, this Saturday's race, Aaron. Aaron, Aaron was Aaron was victorious last year. Is that right? No, gentlemen, it's an honor. Uh, thank you very much for having me back on. Uh, I don't know if uh, well, one of the things that happened two years ago was when things started shutting down for COVID nineteen. Uh, we started getting feedback real quickly saying, "How's this going to affect the Oaks? How's this going to affect Churchill Downs? How's this going to affect the Derby?" Because these are flat you know these are flagship events uh for hospitality so it's a pleasure to be on and, and share some uh some tips on the derby now now last year you the derby winner was medina spirit but you had who last year you know as is a problem of mine i picked midnight bourbon and it didn't feel too good the next morning <laughs> let's hope you do better all right aaron you have the floor my friend who are you, who are you going with in the derby this year so uh, our, our friend Bob Baffert is not allowed this year due to Medina Spirit's uh, toxicology report last year. But so King Midas is no longer on the on the track, but King Midas's touch is still on some of these horses. I like Messier, who is a Bob Baffert horse, mm-hmm. but just not riding under his banner this year. Same training, same, uh, you know, they live in the same places, have the same food, same uh, programs. So I like Messier. You get the uh, King Midas touch without the King being there, still golden. He really does spend his time at Pimlico. There's no doubt. I mean, he's he's deep into the analysis, Mister Keefeifer. That's that's why do you think we have him on the? I mean, it's like having your own Hank Goldberg from ESPN on the on the thing. Uh, I like Messier as well. Only be, you know, it, it's great horse. Franklin, who do you got in the Derby this year? I'm going with Tawny Port nice. because I. I actually love I love a port. I don't know if you knew that about me, guys, but uh, I love port wine, sweet port, to be honest. Not not necessarily Tawny, but for that reason, I'm I'm feeling it. I'm going with Tawny Port. Uh, I think that's going to be the one. Well, I'm a sailor, so port means left to me. So I, I understand that, but I do like. I have been to the city of Porto in Portugal and had gone into the caves and had had some port. Franklin, I am going. Franklin and Aaron, I am going with Mo Donegal. That is that is the one. If you if you know anything about horse racing, you know you can from a, from a given name you can trace lineage. So you know Mo Donegal's sire, you know, has a name very similar, and, and you know the names are kind of one offs down the family tree, and you can kind of trace the the, the, the lineage of the horse. Mo Donegal is a rarity in uh, racing. It's a horse from Iowa, believe it or not, from Iowa. But I'm going with Mo because Mo has run seven races this year and has never placed outside of the money. How about that? Never <laughs> pretty good. The money. That's a Todd Fletcher situation you're, you're working with there too. I yeah. mean, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty. <clears throat> so yeah. I'm going with, I'm Joe is going to go with Mo and that's how we're, that's how we're doing it this year. 
You see that? You see that? Podcaster extraordinaire right there, Aaron. I'll tell you what. <laughs> it's going to be a muddy one, but it's going to be exciting. It's, it's going to be yeah. nice to have everyone back and those uh, those stands filled. Yeah, unfortunately, you're going to spend 95% of the broadcast talking about Bob Baffert, so I'm not looking forward to that And uh, anyway, So anyway, Run for the Roses on Saturday and then the Gift of Roses on Sunday. Aaron, what are you doing special for your mom or the women in your life? Mother's Day. So uh, my wife has, uh, we, we have two beautiful sons. Uh, so we have uh, an appropriate big, uh, big reservation in actually Baltimore overlooking the harbor. So we're really excited about that. Brings a tear to my eye. Downtown <laughs> Balmer. I love it. Love me some Balmer. Franklin, you got a lot of ladies in your life. What's going on on your casa? Yeah. I hope you don't get shivved on the way to the uh, parking to the, to your, your uh, breakfast. Easy. Yeah. So, you know, we, we just do it at home, breakfast in bed, mama gets, you know, it's a, it's a thing. So we'll be racking up. We got a couple of local bakeries where we get, you know, some croissants and a quiche and all that kind of stuff. And then we'll do, uh, we've got a couple of little presents for mama. So it's pretty low key in our household. We keep it, we, we stay at home. We don't go out and fight the crowds. If we did, we may end up at Kiki's to be honest, but that's ours. It's, it's pretty laid back. So my, my, my daughters have some surprise airplane trips coming in for Mother's Day, and I will be going to the airport Sunday morning to collect these said surprises for Mother's Day. And then from my own, for, as Franklin knows, Aaron, I've got to go on a cruise next week that my, my mom has put together for our family. And, you know, I kind of have to want to jump overboard, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless, I will There's be doing nothing it. like force fun you can't flee from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so my my Mother's Day is getting the Super Bowl. She's she's on a, on a cruise with the whole family, so uh, should be interesting. It's it's good. This will be the first kind of Mother's Day in a, in two or three years where we're back kind of at, at full capacity. Operators need it. Public needs it. And so I'm wishing well. Good thoughts to all operators on Mother's Day. Let's get back to normal. Have a great Mother's Day. And to all the moms out there, uh, we wish you a happy, healthy, and safe Mother's Day. And we'll talk to you next week. 